0: You're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Sparr. Dr. Sparr is the Spangler family professor at Harvard Business School. She's also the Senior Associate Dean, Director of Research. Thank you, Dr. Sparr, for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Today we're going to be discussing her new book, Baby Business, how Money, Science, and Politics Drives the Commerce of Conception. Dr. Spar, how did you build the premise that procreation has actually become a business?
1: One of the things I do is just really the basic one of trying to lay out for people what the various business practices are in this area. So I talk about prices. I show people what the prices are for various different treatments. And I I talk about what the basics of of economics are, what does supply look like, what does demand look like, and what are the prices.
0: Why is it that the public in general doesn't like to think about procreation or the manipulations or fertility clinics that people are going through as actually a business?
1: Well, I think that's very understandable because in this business, which, which is a business, the product, of course, is a child. And nobody wants to think of a child and certainly not their child as being a commercial entity. So people go through all kinds of loops and hoops to try and convince themselves that they're not actually taking part in a commercial transaction.
0: What are the parts of this business that you looked into in your research?
1: I looked at as many of the separate pieces that I could identify. So I look at the market for sperm, which is really the part of this market that's been around the longest because it was the piece technologically that we figured out earliest. I look at the growing market for eggs. I touch briefly on on the very, very new market for embryos. I look at the market for genetic engineering and technologies like PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And then I also fold in here the market for adoption, which I actually think is very, very important because although adoption advocates definitely don't want to see adoption as a market. I think there's some large group of people who who really make a choice between going for fertility treatments versus looking for a child to adopt and I think those these two markets if you will for fertility treatments and for adoption really need to be seen of as as part and parcel of, of a very similar process.
0: That's very interesting because the cost of going through IVF and the other procedures is so much greater than the cost of going through adoption. And the process of adoption seems to be so tightly controlled by various agencies, and there's a hands-off when it comes to fertility evaluations.
1: One of the things that that personally just gets me very upset is when I uh, talk to people who say, well, we really wanted to adopt, but we couldn't afford it, and so we did fertility treatments instead. And that gets me upset not because people are making a choice that's very much their right to make, but because they've gotten the math wrong because in most cases, fertility is much more expensive than adoption, and I just wish, and this is one of the things the book tries to do, is to just make sure people understand the math so that they understand that yes, adoption is expensive, but it's pretty well guaranteed you'll get a child, whereas fertility, it can be less depending on your medical condition and the state you live in, but in many cases, fertility treatments can wind up costing people a lot more than adoption without the promise of a child at the end of the the process.
0: As a physician, I'm struck also that there's certainly much more risk involved in a fertility workup, such as high doses of various hormones, laparoscopic surgery to recapture or to capture or harvest eggs. Very little is mentioned about those risks in the clients who are looking for a child, and yet adoption, the two people certainly don't go through any personal risk.
1: No, that's right. And I think that's a really important parallel to point out because it's interesting if you sort of go online and you type in adoption, particularly international adoption or foster adoption, the word risk is going to come up sort of every other word. There's going to be the risk of the children having genetic problems or the risk that you don't know who the birth parents were. There's a lot of fear in adoption. And yet in fertility, we arguably, or almost certainly, there's a lot more risk for the particularly the woman involved in terms of the medical treatment she'll go through i think those risks tend to be downplayed and i think even worse in some cases the the medical risk to the child who will be born as a result of infertility treatment depending on on the specifics of the treatment there can be a real danger to the child or the children there as well and those risks are very much downplayed
0: there's also the risk of multiple births could you care to comment on that this
1: one of the things that I really was most frightened of coming off this research. This is a rare occurrence, but but a dangerous one. So we're seeing uh, doctors and prospective parents who are transplanting too many embryos. So the single most dangerous thing you can do to a child in utero is to make him or her a part of a multiple pregnancy. And the data here are all very, very clear that a twin pregnancy is more dangerous Than a single pregnancy, a triplet pregnancy is way more dangerous than a twin pregnancy, and so on and so forth. And most responsible physicians increasingly will only transfer one or two embryos, and yet there's still a small number of physicians and clinics who are transplanting three, four, five embryos and creating what, in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, are very, very dangerous pregnancies, both for the the mother and for the children involved.
0: We know at the present time there is probably over 400,000 unused embryos in our country. Why hasn't anybody directed our attention to using those embryos? We know in our political framework at our present time those embryos are not going to be used for research, but they certainly could be used to bring new life into the world. Why hasn't our attention been directed to those?
1: Well, in fact, a fair amount of money has been spent to try and direct your attention to those. There was a very interesting episode several years ago where a gentleman who runs a Christian adoption agency in California actually decided to try and do just what you mentioned, which is to set up a process whereby parents could adopt these excess embryos. And because of, sort of the, both the politics and the religion involved here, he got a lot of support from the Bush administration. And a program was created called the Snowflakes Program. And every once in a while, you'll see these snowflakes babies actually showing up in Congress in the arms of their parents who are testifying. But with snowflakes and with some other much lower profile programs, prospective parents can, in fact, adopt or to use the less polit- you know, politically laden word, have transferred preexisting embryos. And you are increasingly having situations where one set of parents created, let's say, four or six embryos. They gave birth to, say, two of those embryos, and another two were carried and given birth to by a different set of parents. So you have biological siblings being raised by two different parents. It seems
0: to make sense to me, not in the field, that when you adopt such an embryo, you already have an idea of what his siblings or her siblings might have been because they've already had a successful child born by the same parents.
1: I think it goes even further than that, that at least in theory, it creates a bit more sense of, of control because the parents who are receiving these excess embryos, in most cases they can get quite a lot of information about the genetic parent's and the existing siblings.
0: As I read parts of your book, I kept coming back to how much or how like organ transplant this area is. You're dealing with a commodity that we don't like to think of as having financial compensation to the donor. It's okay to give it away. You have a desperate customer. You have tourism involved. And there often is not a level playing field. And yet, in the field of organ transplant, the government became very much involved. There's a United Network on Organ Sharing. There's a 1968 Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. There's a 1987 National Organ Transplant Act. We're very, very concerned about the disenfranchised not being taken advantage of, the poor not being taken advantage of. This doesn't seem to exist at all in this area.
1: No, it doesn't, Uh, at least not in the United States. In some other parts of the world, In fact, egg and sperm donation are indeed treated much more like organ transplant. So some governments have said, gee, an egg is like a kidney. Let's treat it the same way. In the United States, we've gone a very different route, and we treat eggs and sperm very differently than we treat kidneys and and livers. But I'm not sure that's a completely nonsensical way to think about it because, after all, let's use a sperm because it's an easier example. A sperm is fundamentally different. From a kidney. and the individual man does not need every sperm he has in order to live. And so most people, I think, tend to think of a spectrum with, you know, let's say hearts on one end of the spectrum and, and blood on the other side. And in the United States, we do allow people to both donate and sell blood. And in this country, sperm have been treated much more like blood than like kidneys. And now that has become possible for women to donate eggs in addition to men donating sperm, it's just sort of happened, and again, politically it makes sense, that if we tended to treat eggs the same way we treat sperm because the parallel seems strongest there.
0: How do you feel about what the media does with this whole area? You can't turn on the TV without getting a, quote, Oprah story, which has put a face on this very charged issue. How do you think this helps or doesn't help in this area?
1: Complicated story, I think. I mean, most of me likes, in fact, to see these stories because I think the world of infertility and the world of fertility treatments were so quiet for so long that it's good for people to know what's going out there. I think it's good for people to be seeing this new world of reproduction and to start thinking about. What are they comfortable with? What goes too far? What are the options? What makes them uncomfortable? I, I think more information is always better than less information. What worries me, though, is that most of these stories have a common happy theme to them. Again, I can see, see why it makes sense to have a, a happy story. Everybody loves stories of, of happy babies and happy parents. But we don't always see the dangers there. I think the stories that make me most upset are the multiple birth stories. So when you see these stories of septuplets being born and it's it's told as a happy story, that really bothers me because those septuplets almost always are going to be very sick babies.
0: When you say that there's a happy ending, I can't help but think as we talk about cardiac arrests that happen on TV. Everybody recovers. And, of course, this puts a whole different aspect on end-of-life issues because the public thinks that everybody survives from every cardiac arrest, which is not the case.
1: Right. And just like, you know, in both the medical stories where you see the recuperation but not the aftermath or love stories where you see the wedding but not the aftermath, you know, birth stories have that same sense about them. So you see the 64-year-old beaming mother with her triplets. You know, what you don't see is 10 years after the fact when then she's 73 years old and she may no longer be alive. Now who's taking care of those triplets? So again, I can understand why the media doesn't tell these sad stories because they don't get as much interest, but they're a critical part of the puzzle.
0: I know also in your book, you seem to stay away from the broken family, stem cell, genetic, international adoption issue as well. It was that on purpose.
1: No. I mean, in fact, the stem cell piece of this really was born, if you will, while I was doing the research for this book. It's something I personally became fascinated with, but it didn't quite fit into this book, although I've been writing quite a lot about stem cells subsequently because I think the overlap between the reproductive industry and the, what will become the stem cell industry is significant and really important.
0: I want to thank Dr. Deborah Spahr. We've been discussing her new book, Baby Business, how Money, Science and Politics Drives the Commerce of Conception. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to XM at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.